Davidic covenant that God made with him here, um, promising him a dynasty, and then David's response to that, which we see at the end of 2 Samuel 7. Let's stand together. I'm going to preach to you how to respond when God blesses you unspeakably. Now, I think we all know, right? We all know when God really blesses you what you ought to do, right? But there might be a surprise for you in it. So just hang in there uh, through the message and let's see. 2 Samuel 7, and beginning in verse 18, these are the words of God. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hither to? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of the man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all of these great things to make thy servant know them? Therefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like the, thy people, even unto Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, but for thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel, to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, O Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do it. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, has revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. Therefore, hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore, now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. Lord, we see the, the abundant ways, the rich ways that you have blessed us. You've called us out of darkness to walk in your light. You've redeemed us, saved our souls, delivered us from the consequences by taking the consequence on yourself. Delivered us from the power of sin, breaking at the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our lives to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, to make us a holy people who more faithfully, more certainly demonstrate who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you've done these things for us, for our sakes. And I pray that we would respond with gratitude to the good work that you've done in us. And I pray that you would use the message this morning to teach us the right way to respond to your blessing. 
And then help us, Lord, that we would respond that way consistently and especially. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from the vain conceit that says that these blessings are mine. I earned them. I got them by my own power, by my own strength. I pray that we would never allow ourselves to think such a thing, but that we would always give the praise and glory and credit to you who are our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Be seated. It might be helpful to reverse David's life up to this point, to know, to understand why David seems to be so overwhelmed with gratitude here. It would help us understand why after God crushed David. Understand. In the life of David, there was there were a lot of difficult things. But in this chapter, the first time in his life that God himself crushed David. Disappointed his purposes, his hopes. And David's response here, that's, that's the thing. In order to understand what God was doing, when David asked, didn't ask, David decided that he should build a temple. Um, and God said, no. No question about it, no doubt, no Maybe, just no, no, you're not going to do that. And David's response is not one of, you know, in the chapter before, I think chapter 6 or chapter 5, I can't remember which one, they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant, remember back to Israel, and Israel reached out his hand to steady the Ark, and God dropped him right there. And the Bible says that David was troubled, that God had done that. But in this time, David is not troubled. He's not upset that God has done that. This is, this is something that was a great passion of David's. And when we go back through his life, as we continue to advance through his life, we'll see this more clearly, more vividly, because David went to incredible lengths in order to have everything in place so that his son could build the temple. David went to great personal expense to see to it that the temple would be built, that his son would not need to raise and put together, assemble all the materials for it. So he had it already there in place. So this was a great driving passion in the life of David to build this temple. But God told David, no, you can't do it. And David didn't respond with disappointment, with frustration. He didn't respond with, <clears throat> he wasn't upset with God. He wasn't saying, why God? Help me understand this. This is a good thing that I want to do. Help me understand why you won't let me do it. But instead, his response is what we just read. Overwhelming gratitude. God crushed David, rejected his proposal, and David, in response, sat down and 
struggled to find the words enough to express his praise and gratitude of God. He was so overcome with gratitude that he had to sit down before the Lord. But we're likely to see as God punishing us, rejecting us, abandoning us, is not always what it seems. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. William Cooper wrote another hymn that I came across, our family came across recently that I thought was just such, a, such an amazing thing. <clears throat> By the way, William Cooper um, made a very serious and nearly successful attempt to kill himself uh, when he was a young man. And he moved to live on the property John Newton offered to really help him. And John Newton helped pull him out of the Valley of Despair many times over throughout his life. William Cooper lived under a cloud of depression. Whether it was his chemical makeup or what, we can't say. There was something in his past that caused him so much guilt and so much pain that he could not give it up. And he always struggled this way. And out of the heart of this crushed man came many, many incredible, in fact, the famous only hymnal that was a combination of um, John Newton and William Cooper, who contributed most of the hymns for that hymnal. So here's one of William Cooper's hymns that I thought was really amazing. The saints should never be dismayed, nor sink in hopeless fear. For when they least expect his aid, the Savior will appear. This Abram found, he raised the knife. God saw and said, forbear. Yon ram shall yield his meaner life. Behold the victim there. Once David seen Saul's certain prey, but hark, the foes at hand. Saul turns his arms another way to save the invaded land. When Jonah sunk beneath the wave, he thought to rise no more. But God prepared a fish to save and bear him to the shore. Blessed proofs of power and grace divine that meet us in his word. May every deep-held care of mine be trusted with the Lord. Wait for his seasonable aid, and though it tarry, wait. The promise may be long delayed but cannot come too late. By God's grace and blessing, sometimes you and I are brought to a place where words fail us, where we grope in what Dale Davis called happy frustration to express what God has done for us. There are not words to express the goodness of God. David shows us how to handle such a happy face. Sit down, open your mouth, and pour out your helpless praise. Then, plead with God to make it so. I'll break up the message into three parts. 
First of all, we'll rehearse the events that laid, uh, led up to this overwhelming response on the part of David. Then, we'll review that happy response. And finally, we'll consider what David teaches us here about prayer. Now that's the point I want to get to that is um, very exciting to me, but we'll have to wait for that until uh, we get to the end of the message, somewhere around one or two o'clock, however long we go. We start with the cause of David's happy frustration. Now don't forget what David's life has been up to this point. I have said it many times, I'll say it again, I, I suppose we should try to remember this. That that moment when David, that fateful moment, when David was called out of the sheep herd from among the flock of sheep to come to the dinner that Samuel had thrown for his family, when Samuel was looking for a king among the sons of Jesse, and that God had passed over every one of Jesse's sons, and Jesse himself, David wasn't even an afterthought with his own dad. Jesse himself thought of all my sons, it's not just the least likely to be the king, it is the one most unlikely to be the king, is David. Jesse had not even bothered to call him, and Samuel demanded that he be sent for. And in that fateful moment, David's life changed from, you could say, I mean, he had fought a lion and a bear, but for the most part, peaceful serenity out there among the sheep. And the moment that he was ordained, anointed to be Israel's next king, became the moment of his undoing. It was as if uh, a, a cloud, a thundercloud, parked over his head and poured down rain day after day. And David wound up fleeing for his life from King Saul and hiding in caves and running in the wilderness and he'd find one city where he could find a safe haven for a little while until that city figured that they could um, enhance their relationship to King Saul by turning David in and then David would be forced to flee for his life once again and it had been gone for David it had gone from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. One thing after another, after another, after another. And then, Saul died. And slowly over, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 chapters, the house of Saul has faded into obscurity. Really, uh, it's not the last thing because we still have to come to Mephibosheth and so on, but Michael, Saul's daughter, um, who ridicules David for his enthusiasm, his zeal uh, in worshiping God and celebrating the, the coming of the ark. And we see the way that the um, house of Saul is shrinking and shriveling. And meanwhile, the house of David continues to rise and rise. Hiram, the king of Tyre, builds him a palace of cedar wood. You can't even imagine what a magnificent palace 
must have been. And David, sitting in that house, he's conquered Jerusalem. He has defeated the Philistines decisively in battle. And as he sits in that palace and enjoys, <clears throat> finally, for the first time since he was anointed, enjoys some time of peace and quiet and rest, he looks and says, I'm ashamed. I dwell in a palace of cedar. And the ark of the Lord dwells in tents. And he contacts Nathan the prophet to say what he has in mind. And Nathan is able to discern what David is thinking. <clears throat> and so Nathan agrees with David's plan. But that night, the Lord God tells Nathan that that's a no-go. We're not doing that. As I pointed out last week, we tend to think, and we've been told that's what we've heard, that God said no to David because David was a bloody man, but 2 Samuel says nothing about that at all. Certainly that, that was a reason. We know that because we can look at what other passages say. But it was not the only reason. We, I'm not really certain that it is the primary reason. But rather, <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7 seems to indicate that God has determined to give his people rest. Give his nation a secure dwelling place. And that God intended to do that before God would provide a place for himself to dwell. And we went through that in our last message. God chose this, though, and this is the key to understand. God chose this moment of rejection. David has a good plan, a right plan, an honorable plan, but God rejects it. And God chooses this moment of rejection to lay out before David, to set before David, his plan to build and bless the house of David. So God, and this is something we see constantly in the Old Testament in these stories, that constantly God is setting up these glorious things that he does with a really ugly backdrop, a really storm, like in, 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 it's in the, the face of these storms, in the face of these disappointments, in the face of these frustrations, that God says, this is how I am going to bless you. Because God loves that contrast between the difficulty that you're facing, between the <clears throat> disappointments and the despair that you feel, and my promise and my blessing and my hope. That is a stark difference between the two. And it is this promise to establish an everlasting dynasty in the house of David that overwhelms David and that inspires this poem of praise to God. Extraordinary blessing calls for extravagant praise, and that's what David teaches us to do. So then let's consider next David's, can we call it this, David's happy groaning in helpless praise. That he 
he is at a loss for words, but that doesn't keep him from trying. There's no way that David can express how overwhelmed his heart is by what God has promised him. Now, keep in mind, David didn't ask for this blessing at all. He didn't ask for a dynasty of any kind whatsoever. He asked to build God a temple. That's what he asked to do. And God said, no, absolutely not. You will not do it. Instead, God said this, instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build your house forever. That's what God said. And David is so staggered by that promise that there are not words adequate to express it. Our text describes David sitting before the Lord in helpless amazement. What overwhelms David isn't the joy that he's been given an everlasting dynasty. All right, now, you might think, well, yeah, I mean, that would make him very happy. Because we tend to think, and it, I, I've noticed this, and I see it in myself, and I still do it. How often, when I thank the Lord, I thank him in terms of what he does for me. I praise him because he's made my life better. It's hard for it not to be overwhelming. But David isn't praising God here. You'll see it. I'm going to show it to you. He's not praising God here because God gave him an everlasting dynasty. Because God has made his name to be great. It's not that David realizes in that moment that, wow, they're going to be talking about me 2,000 years after Jesus dies. That's not how David's thinking about it. Not at all. But rather, David sees in this <clears throat> the hand of God. And I, I want you to see what he sees about the hand of God in this whole thing. Notice what David emphasizes here. He's humbled by the promise. No doubt about that. We read in verse <clears throat> 18, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? That thou hast brought me hither to. David is overwhelmed, he's humbled, but he isn't focused on himself, he isn't focused on his legacy, he isn't focused on the greatness of his house. Instead, David focuses on the greatness of God. And I want to show you how we can know this, all right? Because Again, I've said this before, but I, I really believe that one of the values of expository preaching is that, and there are many values, but one of them is that it helps, it instructs you when you're looking at the Bible what to look for, what to notice when you're reading, trying to understand. So it kind of is like not just giving a man a fish, right, but teaching the man to fish. And I think that's part of the call of a pastor as well. <clears throat> David is not focused on himself, but rather on the greatness of the Lord. And here's how we can know that. The key word in this chapter is the word house. The word house, if you went through the whole chapter, you would see it. It shows up. It's used 15 times 
You have to check 15 times the word house is repeated. Seven times in our text, from verse 18 to verse 29, the word house is used. So this is a key word in the chapter. But that isn't David's focus. The word house is kind of the topic that is under discussion now. And David wants to build a house for the Lord. God intends that David's son will build a house for his name. But before he does, God is going to establish the house of David for the good of his people, for the security of his people. That's the topic under discussion, under review here. But I want you to notice how many times between verse 18 and verse 29, David uses the name of God in this passage. How many times David aims what he's saying, addresses the Lord God. <clears throat> now, he uses the Lord God eight times in the passage. In fact, I think I counted more than that. Lord God, sometimes God is in all caps. A couple of times, Lord is in all caps. Lord God, that combination is Adonai Yahweh or Yahweh Adonai. I counted eight times in the passage, and on top of that, the name Lord or Yahweh by itself, Lord in all caps, and the Lord in all caps of hosts. So many times in this passage, when David is praising God, yes, he's speaking of his house, but his focus is on the Lord. Notice his reason for praising God. First of all, David points out that God is the one who has brought him hitherto in verse 18. So, so David is recognizing that where I am at right now, I am here by the grace of God. He sees that. He credits God. It is not by his elusive power, by his cunning, by his craftiness, by his might, by his strength, by his valor, his courage in battle, but by the hand of the Lord, you, Lord, have brought me to this place, brought me hitherto. <coughs> no doubt, yes, in mind, those years of running from Saul, wandering in the wilderness, of fleeing for his life place to place. But my, how the tables have turned for David now. He's not hiding out in caves anymore. He lives in a palace of cedar in Jerusalem, the city that he conquered for the Lord and made the center of the nation of Israel. And in verse 19, he says, and this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now notice that question. And is this the manner of men, I'm sorry, the manner of man, O Lord God? Now, <clears throat> there are rabbit trails that we take sometimes that are a distraction, and there are rabbit trails that we take sometimes to fill time. 
I probably shouldn't say that, right? Because you're thinking he fills way too much time, right? But there are rabbit trails. Yes, it happens. Not me, other people. Chase rabbits just for the amusement of chasing the rabbit because, you know, it came to my mind and, and so I've got to chase after this thing. But, but I think that there's a really fruitful rabbit trail that we can take that's not really a rabbit trail, but that is important to understanding this text. And that is in this question. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? The word manner translates the Hebrew word Torah. You might recognize that word, Torah. The most familiar word for the law. <clears throat> so we could say literally that David is asking, is this the law of man, O Lord God? <clears throat> we can take it to mean that David is asking either a sincere question out of curiosity and a desire to know, or he is asking this in amazement. Is this, this referring to David's dynasty, is David's dynasty the Torah of man? But it wouldn't make sense that God established David's dynasty and that this became the law of man, man's law. Our Bible, the King James Bible, asks in amazement, is this the manner of man? So clearly they recognize that uh, law is not adequate to express the Torah here, the meaning of Torah here in this passage. Is this the manner of man? That's a good way to put it. The Torah is more than law. Uh, Brown Driver Briggs defines Torah as direction, instruction, law. The Torah is God's direction for his people, his prescription for his people. That makes man the beneficiary. God blesses us with his Torah, with his direction, with his prescription. And in David's I think incredulous question here. He is asking God out of amazement, is this human destiny? That's what he's asking. Is this the Torah of man? Is this the direction of mankind? The direction of humanity? Is this the human destiny? He's asking that in amazement. Walter Kaiser translates it as the charter for humanity. We call this Torah a charter because it is the plan and prescription for God's kingdom, whereby the whole world shall be blessed. It is a grant conferring powers, rights, and privileges to David and his seed for the benefit of all mankind. Now follow with me for a moment because we pointed out to you that the narrowing scope 
of the covenants that God made since the creation of the world. Beginning with Adam, when God promised to Adam's wife, to Eve, that she, that the serpent would bruise mankind's heel, her seed's heel, and that her seed would bruise the serpent's head. And then there was Noah, where God made a, a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And then God called Abraham and made a covenant with him and said, really, the Bible says, preach the gospel to Abraham. When God said to Abraham, in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So David knows this. He knows the trail. He knows the narrowing scope of God's promise of the gospel. And David now recognizes here that God just narrowed it even more. Because now God has shown how he will bless all nations in Abraham. It will be through the kingly line of David, that all nations of the earth will be blessed. And David is asking a question out of amazement. He is astounded. Is this the charter of humanity? Is this human destiny in what you have just promised by promising me an eternal Dynasty, have you just? He's saying it. Pardon me. He's saying it in amazement. He's astounded. Have you just identified the way you're going to bless all nations through me, through my seed, through my kingly line? He's overwhelmed at the thought of it. God established an eternal destiny in the house of David, not for David's sake. See, that's the thing that you've got to remember. David isn't overwhelmed because God has blessed him in such an amazing way. He is overwhelmed because God has blessed the world by establishing the line of David. Because through the kingly line of David, God intended to keep his promise to Abraham. David then points out that God knows his servant. Look at verse 20. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. Oh, he's staggered, overwhelmed, amazed, astounded that God has finally revealed the way that he's going to bless all nations. By establishing the throne and dominion of David. <clears throat> and then David says, what more can I say to you? Because you know your servant. That phrase also deserves a little extra attention. The word know there in the Hebrew is in the perfect tense. It is... David sees it as an established fact that God knows him. It fits with something that the Lord told Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. 
And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. See, this is the thing that you need to remember with God. That God doesn't know things because he discovered it, or because he uncovered a truth or a fact, or because he was sitting in heaven and watching as things played out, and he caught on and figured it out and solved the riddle and solved the mystery. God is not watching as one who desires to know or needs to learn. God didn't know David as one who had discovered a gem in the heap of humanity. God has not learned about David and therefore knows him. God raised up David. God shaped him to the man that he is. God caused him to be what he is. God chose David for this high calling. No wonder then that David is overwhelmed. No wonder. No wonder he finds himself searching for the right words to express his amazement at these things. David recognizes that this blessing is according to the sovereign will of God and not something that he merited, but rather something that God himself caused to be, brought into being. Verse 21, for thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. David sees as part of the astounding thing that God would make this known to himself. Now isn't it good for us to see God's grace in our blessings. I know that I know that normally, in fact, I, I almost said it right there. Normally we would say, isn't it good when we can see God's grace in our trials? Right? But you tell me, which do we struggle with more? Because in trials, in times of trial, is it not true that we're looking for God's grace in that time? Huh? But what about in our blessings? Huh? How easy is it in a time of blessing to think, yeah, I've been walking with the Lord. I've been doing really good, too. I, I haven't been, you know, slumming. I haven't been drifting off. And I've been really diligent, and God is blessing me. Isn't that how we think? Do we not need to learn to see God's grace in our blessings as well? Notice that David says God did these things not for his sake. God did these things for his word's sake. You remember that God has magnified his word above his name itself? That in fact, the name of God and his reputation is based on the word, based on what he says, and that he does what he says. So David recognizes here that what, what God has just done is to confirm a promise that he made to a man who died a long time ago. But God is still engaged with keeping that word, keeping that promise. Isn't that good? 
God's word is the spoken expression of his will. God sets forth his plan in his word, and God, through by means of his word, keeps that plan as well. God's word. But also notice that David sees these things as coming not just from God's word, but also from coming from God's heart. Uh, now, this is, this is something that Jesus knew about us, and he told us this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You know why Jesus could say that? Because Jesus knew the source for everything that God said. Because God also spoke out of the abundance of his heart. So <clears throat> David then is able to see the goodness, not just the goodness, but the greatness of God. Verse 22, wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David sees that there's none like God. That means David recognizes that there is no other God. He is God alone, and therefore David can say that God is great. God's promise is not what makes God great. God's promise reveals God's greatness. It makes you see it. But that isn't all. David also recognizes the way God has set apart Israel from among the nations as his special people. I find it interesting, by the way, the parallels between David and Israel. It just seems to me that Israel's experience was David's experience as he also came to be king. It's like David was reliving the experience of Israel and understand that God has raised up David because he intends to establish the kingdom and secure his people through the dynasty of David. And that's what David is pointing to as well. David sees God confirming Israel to himself. Verse 23, And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you, that is for Israel, great things and terrible. And by the way, it seems to me that David knew that what he was writing here was not just for his own private diary but that it was for public consumption, that the people of Israel were going to read this and know it. And so David said, he switches here. You see it? And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, he's speaking to God, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself. He switches from speaking directly to God to speaking about God and to make him a name and to do for you, he's now aiming at, at the people of Israel, great things and terrible. And then he switches back to speaking to God. For thy land, before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever and thou, Lord, art become their God. So again, by establishing David's dynasty, God established his people forever. So this is why, again, why I say that the reason 
God refused to allow David to build the temple is not purely because David was a bloody man. All right? And I pointed this out last time, but in the passage in 2 Chronicles, where this is spoken of, 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles, in the Chronicles, where it's spoken of, there's a different emphasis there. But in this case, God is saying that before you build me a dwelling place, I am going to build you a secure dwelling place. Before you build my house, I'm going to build your house. And God is doing this because God takes care of his people first. God is more concerned with giving rest than with taking rest. <clears throat> because those who preach, and I, I need to say this, because there is this thing of replacement theology out there that says that Israel has been discarded, that Israel is no more, that the church is the new Israel. But this is not the way the Bible speaks. The promise that God made to Abraham, indeed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, is a promise that God intends to keep. And the fact that the, the throne of David itself is established forever, didn't end didn't come to an end because the royal seed of David is still ruling as king today to this day and the promises that God made to Israel yes have been a blessing to us but that didn't remove the blessing from Israel yes it's true Israel has rejected what God has done what God has given for them and so because they reject, while they reject, they cannot enjoy the blessing of God's promise. But the promise is still there. And if Israel will repent and turn to God, they will enjoy that blessing once again. They will, they will benefit from this blessing. <clears throat> God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, and that covenant has not ended. It's only flourished and expanded. We're included, you and me are included in that promise. We're blessed because God established an eternal dynasty in David. David sees that God has chosen to bless all nations through his own family, and that is overwhelming to him. So then, that brings me to the point that I was excited for, and here I've been distracted and excited by all these other things, but there's just so much in the Word of God, so many treasures, it's hard, it's like going through, you know, a set of baseball cards from back when you were a big baseball fan, you know, back in the 80s, when I was a big baseball fan, going through those cards and seeing, oh man, look at this one, and look at this one, and look at this one. There are treasures everywhere. Yeah, it doesn't really compare to baseball cards. <clears throat> but I want you to see what David teaches us about prayer. Because when God had blessed David this way, and in his amazement at the good hand of God upon him, what did David do in response? He did not sit back up his feet 
and bask in the blessing. He didn't <clears throat> soak up all the goodness and luxuriate on the palisade of the palace. You know what David did? He prayed. He prayed. That's what he did. It's funny. There are certain things that almost like condition responses, almost like we can expect this to happen. I pointed one out earlier that when you're in a time of trial, we are conditioned, and rightly so, to look to see God's goodness in that, in that trial, right? But then when the blessing comes, we just have this tendency to think that my own hands got that, that I earned that, that part, right? I mean, I've just done really well, and I've been really good, and I've, I've kept my nose to the grindstone, and I've, I've been really faithful, and I've been having my devotions, and I've been walking with the Lord, and I haven't been slandering my neighbors. And we think of all the reasons why God has blessed us. He must be really pleased with me right now. But of course, we know better than that, right? And we need to learn to see God's goodness in blessing as well. The other thing that is, I think, pretty typical, ordinary, in times of trial, we go immediately to prayer. But what about in times of blessing? You say, well, I want to thank the Lord right away. I thank him right away. And David did too. But David didn't stop there. David prayed. He was blessed, richly blessed, amazingly. He couldn't express, he couldn't find words to express, express or describe the grace that he had experienced. And so he prayed. He prayed. And notice what he prayed. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning this house, establish it forever. And do as thou hast said. Wait, 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 wait a minute. This sounds like conceit to me. This sounds, this is too much. It's almost arrogant. David prays to the Lord and he says, Now, Lord, go do what you said you'd do. Yes, right? We're irate. We're indignant. What kind of man is this? What kind of pride is this? But David prays God's promises. He prays those promises. I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you have ever thought that we ought to pray the promises of God? I'm inclined to think that we would be more likely to say, no, we should trust the promises of God. We should rest in the promises of God. We should believe the promises of God. But who ever heard of praying the promises of God? And yet that is exactly what David did. Do what you've said. 
And that's a right way for us to pray. Magnify your own name by blessing your people. Notice what he says. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. Show the world, this is what he's praying, show the world that you are the God of Israel by keeping your promise to Israel. Show the world. Notice what David says in verse 27. Therefore, hath thy servant found in his heart, prayeth his prayer unto thee. I found it in my heart. That, that language might be a little different for us because in our minds, we think that he found it in his heart. You know, like, like I found it in my heart to give me this pen. Yes. Right? Like this is an act of charity. But no, that's not what it means. When David said, therefore, hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee, what he means is that your promise has given me the courage to ask you for what you promised. You remember I told you, David didn't ask God to give him a dynasty, right? He didn't ask God to give him a dynasty. Not at all. No, <clears throat> David asked God to let him build him a house, and God said, no, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to give you the dynasty, right? That's what he said. <clears throat> so this is the amazing thing here. David found the courage to ask God to build his house, not God's house, but to build David's dynasty. Something David would have never thought of asking, except that God promised it. We would accuse David if he had gone to the Lord, if the Bible recorded David going to the Lord and saying, Lord, please establish my house forever. Establish my throne forever. We would say, that's just too much, David. I mean, haven't you been given enough? But because God made this promise to David, therefore, David has the courage to ask God to bless him this way, not just because David wants that blessing for himself, but because David recognizes that by establishing his throne, God is also blessing all of mankind, all of humanity. David found the courage to ask God for such a staggering grace, not because David was especially bold, but because God's promises were especially good. The fact that God had promised gave David the courage to ask, to pray for these. Recognizing the greatness of God, David boldly asked God to bless his house with an eternal dynasty. Verse 28, And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. But wait just a second. Just a second. Does that mean the fact that David prayed this, does that mean that he didn't believe 
that God would do it? I mean, isn't that what we think? Well, if he asked God to do it, he must not have believed that God would do it. It's, it's one of those things, it's almost like a conceit we have about our prayer life. That God won't do it unless I ask him. Huh? No, no. God was going to do it. He promised it because he was going to do it. And David prayed it because he believed that God was going to do it. And that is the nature of our prayers. That we ought to be praying. I mean, there are other things that we might pray for and ask God to do that we're not certain that he'll do. But certainly we ought to pray that God would do the things that he said he would do. We should pray for those. <clears throat> we have a tendency, though, to get a little technical when it comes to prayer. You know, we need to justify our praying. It needs to make sense to us. And it doesn't make any sense to us to pray for things that God has promised us already. Why would we do that? Almost seems faithless, like you don't believe. Now, no doubt we've all heard someone rant this way against prayer. I have never heard anyone offer a scriptural reason to refuse to pray this way. And in fact, we're taught to pray for the things that God has promised us. Uh, let me give you another example. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 12 and verse 22, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. So Jesus told his disciples, take no thought for what you'll eat, right? And then Jesus teaches us to pray. In fact, the chapter before this, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 3, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us day by day our daily, daily bread. The reason he says not to take thought for what you'll eat is because, well, as David the psalmist said in Psalm 37, I've been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. And yet... Jesus tells us to pray, give us day by day our daily bread. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus, right? And yet, we are taught to pray, give us day by day our daily bread. To pray that God would provide our needs. Why should we pray that God would provide our needs? Because God promises to provide our needs. And because we need to announce that, we're trusting him to do it by asking him to. We could illustrate with many, many of God's promises. But our text gives us David's example. <clears throat> because David has just poured out his heart in glorious praise for God's promise to establish his house. And now David prays that God will establish his house. It isn't that David forgot or got confused or...